Well, why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12 and go to verse 13. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21 today. You know, there are a few occasions that pose as much opportunity for relational strife between family members as when it comes time for an inheritance to be received and to be divided up. Uh, Probably in me even making that reference, some of you have been taken back to a a painful episode, uh, a painful time uh, in your life. Perhaps you have lived through such an unfortunate experience. The occasion of Jesus' teaching that we come to today in Luke chapter 12 uh, is a response by Jesus to someone who had made an appeal to him regarding an inheritance. In verse 13 of chapter 12, we're told someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to uh, divide the inheritance with me. Probably a lot of people have said that in, in the history of the world. Tell my brother... He needs to share that uh, with me. Uh, Evidently, the father of these siblings had passed away, and there was a dispute between them regarding uh, the inheritance. Now, in this time, in most cases, there was not much of a dispute because the the Jewish laws of uh, inheritance and and dealing with um, uh, property were often uh, pretty clear-cut. So these laws of succession, they were called, were pretty clear-cut. And so there usually wasn't much room for doubt, but every once in a while, a situation would arise where there could still be some uncertainty as to how things uh, were to be handled. And so this guy is appealing to Jesus uh, as a rabbi, as rabbis typically would settle uh, these disputes over uh, matters of the law. Now, it doesn't appear that the man and his brother had agreed to any kind of arbitration. It doesn't appear that they had agreed to come and appeal to Jesus. What's happening here is that this man is taking matters into his own hands. Uh, And so he's not really even asking Jesus to to arbitrate the situation. He is asking Jesus to be an advocate on his behalf against uh, his brother. Uh, Disputes uh, regarding inheritance uh, are very revealing uh, to to how we view money and possessions in our lives. Disputes regarding inheritance really uh, reveal how highly we value money and possessions. They have such a hold on many of us that, that sometimes we are willing to defraud those that we love the most or that we should love the most in an effort to get more for ourselves. And again, some of you have maybe seen this play out in your own life. I think it's interesting to note that Jesus was not uh, really that into trying to settle their dispute. Uh, he, he really wasn't interested in getting caught up in this dispute uh, about money. Leon Morris, in his commentary on the book of Luke, uh, says this, Jesus came to bring people to God, not to bring property to people. I just think that's a great line. Uh, I, I think if you take notes, which it doesn't look like any of you are, you could, uh, you, you could, write, that, you, you could write that down. Uh, Jesus came to bring people to God, not to bring property to people. And Morris goes on and says, in this situation, he was concerned with the attitudes of those involved, not with who got what. And friends, Jesus is very concerned with our attitude toward money and possessions. He's very concerned with your attitude toward money and possessions. 
Now, I believe that uh, money and material things are morally neutral. They're neither good nor bad. But our attitude toward money, our attitude toward possessions, that's another thing entirely. And Jesus is extremely concerned with our attitude about money and stuff. And so he uses the occasion of this uh, question that's been presented to him to address this topic of possessions. So if you would, follow along with me as I read verses 14 through 21 of Luke 12. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me to judge, uh, to be a judge? I can't read. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Wow. There's a good American dream passage for you. (laughs) First, I want you to notice Jesus' initial response. Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? We don't really think of Jesus starting out with the man lingo, do we? Hey, man. But this is what what he does. And, And it comes off, and I believe it is, a bit of a sharp response. I think there is a tone of annoyance here. And then Jesus launches into teaching about greed, which suggests to me that he knew that this man's question, that this man's appeal was probably motivated by greed. Now, I think Jesus used the occasion of the question to to teach for the benefit of the crowd that was gathered that day. But I think it's very likely that the man asking the question needed this teaching as much, probably more, than anyone else in the crowd. What about us? Do we need what Jesus says here? Do you think that a group of Americans, even Christian Americans, gathered on a Sunday morning need to hear what Jesus says about greed? Now, If you find yourself tempted to use resources only for yourself, which I don't think I'm um, lacking any confidence in us to say that's probably an issue that we all struggle with, I think it's a temptation we all face, then I think we need to listen very carefully to what Jesus says on this particular topic. In verse 15, he says, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. It's a warning. Jesus is warning them. He's warning us about greed. Watch out. Be on guard against greed. 
And why is it that he tells us to watch out? Why are we to be on guard because of this? A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. Jesus is telling us that possessions, money, and stuff are a really poor way to measure a person's life. Don't overlook this. Don't underestimate this. Jesus, Savior and Lord, says that possessions are a poor measure of a person's life. Do you think that's relevant for us living in the United States of America in 2012? Do do you think that we have a problem with measuring people's lives by their money and their stuff? Yes, we have a problem with that. So sometimes we might be tempted to say, no, you know, we're, we, we've allowed Jesus to transform our thinking and no, this really isn't an issue for us. But often the honest answer is yes, at least it is for many of us. And, and it really uh, becomes yes, the answer becomes yes if we ask the question this way, do we measure our own lives by money and stuff? You see, most of us, at least at an intellectual level, are able to catch ourselves when we begin to judge someone else based on money and possessions. We, we realize, at least intellectually, that this is something really awful that we're doing, making a, a judgment on a person's you know, worth and being because of their stuff. And so we stop ourselves. But when it comes to to looking inward, when it, when it comes to evaluating our own lives, do we measure our own lives, our worth, our value, our success by our money and our stuff? The answer is obvious. You better believe that we do. You know this. Every time you feel bad about the car you drive compared to someone else. I know this. Every time. I pull up at a traffic light in my 2004 Dodge Caravan and I look over at a guy who's in like, you know, a Mustang or a Corvette. Shake my head. (laughs) You had to be a pastor. You had to be a pastor. (laughs) Just, 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 Just a joke. Just a joke. You know this at times when you feel good about your car compared to someone else's car. Or your house or your yard is better than your neighbor's. You know it. You know this when you feel a bit awkward when you share your vocation with someone. Because your vocation is one that pretty much everybody knows it's not a high-paying field. And so when you share what you do, you know people are pretty much clued into the fact that you don't earn a lot of money. You know this when you start feeling a bit of pride about your salary, especially when compared to a friend's salary, which your friend just happened to divulge to you. You know this when you feel embarrassed about your home decorating. You know this when you feel embarrassed of your home furnishings. You know it when you feel great pride in your home decorating or your home furnishings especially when you see someone else who doesn't have it quite as nice. You know this when you feel as though you've let your family down because you can't take that vacation that was planned. We make these judgments about ourselves all the time. 
you know this when you buy something to impress somebody. My brother has it, so I need one. My sister has this, so I need it. Our, our friends, who we are in a competition to the death with, have one of these, so we need it too. And there's great danger in this. When we measure our lives by a standard that God rejects, we set ourselves up for giving our time and our talents toward pursuing things that take us in a completely different direction than what's pleasing to God. We, we risk giving ourselves to living up to a measurement of our lives that's based on a value system that's completely opposite of the value system of the one we say we follow, Christ the Lord. And if you're here and you're doing that, measuring your life by a standard that Jesus doesn't consider, pursuing a, a life that isn't endorsed by Jesus, then I encourage you to heed this warning today. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Heed the warning. Stop living like it does. Stop judging yourself like it does. Stop making decisions like it does. It's a warning. I think it's also an encouragement. It's a warning if you're giving yourself wholeheartedly to the pursuit of money and stuff. It is an encouragement if you've chosen to see that pursuit the way Jesus sees it. And you've opted to have your life measured by a different standard. And I know that there are some of you in here who have made this decision. And probably others that I'm not aware of who you've made this decision. I, I think that there are some here today who have made such decisions in their lives where they have, they have chosen the path that pleases God rather than this path of money and stuff. Either at a critical juncture in your life, you, you made a decision that cost you dearly in this area of possessions, or maybe you have made multiple decisions throughout your life that has cost you dearly when it comes to money and stuff, have cost you dearly to this way that we all have of measuring ourselves. Maybe you're a married couple who chose when you had children to uh, keep the wife at home or the husband, which, whichever way you work that out. And maybe that cost you 55% of your income at that time. You know, losing 55% of your income is tough. But maybe you did that. You, you thought that God was, was calling you to that. And now you feel, because of that decision, you feel a bit deficient in the money and stuff measurement. Maybe you had a great job offer that was going to take you across the country, but at the time the offer came, you had a family member who was ill who needed you to attend to them. And so you chose to do what you thought would please God rather than do what would be financially the most advantageous for yourself. Maybe you decided that the high-paying job that came with the expectations of working 60 or 70 or 80 hours a week was simply going to wreak havoc on your family life wreak havoc on your devotional life and your involvement in the body of Christ. And so you opted for something else. Now let me, let me say here that if you are working 60 or 70 hours a week, 
That doesn't mean you're greedy. So don't, don't hear me say that today. That's not what I'm saying. That might be what you have to do right now at this point in your life to provide for your family. That might be what you have to do to keep a job in this economy. I understand that. And sometimes working 60 or 70 hours a week can be absolutely the decision that's pleasing to God, the godly decision for you to make. But if you're in that situation, you might want to prayerfully consider and look and pray for opportunities that God could bring your way that would help you get more balance in your life. But, but don't hear judgment if that's where you're at. Uh, that's, that's not what I'm saying today. Maybe you felt uh, called by God to intentionally live below your means so that you can be more of a blessing to others. And so you've made good money, but your lifestyle has not changed in 10, 20, 30 years. And this decision maybe has you feeling a, a, a bit deficient in this money and stuff measurement. And there could be a hundred other examples that we could give of this. A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. It's a warning, but it's also an encouragement. And I think there are several of you here today that God wants to encourage you right now. This is the part of the message as I, as I prepared and prayed that I just felt the most presence of the Holy Spirit as I was preparing. I think somebody needs this encouragement. Your decisions have cost you dearly when it has come to money and possessions. I think some of you, it has cost you so much that you find yourself second-guessing whether it was the right way to go, wondering if perhaps you've chosen poorly. And here's what I believe God wants me to share with you today. You chose well. You chose well. You traded stuff for things that are of infinitely higher value. Here's what I believe God wants to say to those of you who are in that situation. Good job. Good job. You haven't gotten caught up in the wrong way of measuring life. You thought correctly. You, you thought with heaven in mind. You allowed God to align your thoughts with his thoughts on this topic. God wants you to know you chose well. Jesus tells a story, a parable, of a man who did not choose well. A man who didn't align his thinking with Jesus' thinking, and far too few of us do. And so Jesus shares the story that we know as the parable of the rich fool. The rich man produced a good crop. This particular year that uh, the, the parable covers a, a really good crop. Uh, it was such a good crop that the current barns he had weren't enough to store it all. And so here's what he decided to do. He decided that he would tear down the barns he had and build bigger barns in the same place. 
And verse 19 tells us that the rich man said this, And I will say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. I want you to notice as you read through this parable uh, that the rich man is only concerned for himself. That, that's all you hear in the entire parable. Things like, what shall I do? I have not place for all of this stuff. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barn. I will build a bigger barn. I will store all my stuff. I'll say to myself over and over again, it's just he's fixated on himself. And after sharing all of these thoughts that the, the rich man had, Jesus says that God will say to the rich man, you Fool. We don't think of God calling people fools, do we? God, God doesn't call people names like that, does he? God tells everybody they're good boys and girls. That's what God does. What is this strange thing in the Bible of God calling somebody a fool? We don't typically think of rich people being foolish. At least I don't. I, I kind of esteem people who have figured out how to get rich. I, I think pretty highly of them, actually. And if you really think about the effort and, and the skill, the insight that's needed to become wealthy, it really kind of shields somebody from that label of being called a fool. But see, Jesus isn't impressed with the choices of the rich man, and so he goes right on and calls the person a fool. He's rich, but he is foolish. He is rich and foolish, the title of today's message. And uh, some of us, all of us, to some degree, are rich. We talked about this over the last few weeks by worldwide standards, every person in here is incredibly wealthy. And some of us, we are rich in possessions, but God is not impressed by us. And when God assesses us, He assesses us as being rich and foolish. Here's why God considered the rich man foolish. First of all, he could not see beyond himself. He couldn't see beyond himself. He had more than he could possibly use, and yet his attention never shifted from himself to others. He, he was determined. He was aggressively self-centered. He didn't consider even once how his abundance might be able to be used to bless someone else. It can be said of too many people, maybe some of, some of us, that we live in a very little world. The borders of our world, north, south, east, and west, are ourselves. We're, we're our entire world. We're just consumed with, with us. Dictionary.com defines greed this way, excessive or rapacious desire, especially for wealth or possessions. Don't you just love definitions of words that require you have to look up other words? I mean, come on. Rapacious? Give me a break. So, 
having had to look up rapacious, uh, basically it's a disregard for other people. It's an it's a excessive desire that has a disregard for others. And, and that's what we see from this man. He's just not concerned with other people at all. Daryl Bach gives us some really good uh, practical definitions of greed. He says, the essence of greed is keeping what resources God brings our way only for ourselves. He goes on and says that greed is an attitude that's entirely concerned with piling up stuff simply for one's own use. Greed is an insatiable desire for more and more and more. And here's something that I think is important for us to understand. You can be greedy no matter where you're at on the rich to poor scale. It's not just rich people who are greedy, folks. It's really not. And so if, if you find yourself kind of on the, the short end of the possessions thing, don't, don't think that Jesus' teaching about greed doesn't apply to you. It might apply to you more than anybody else in the room. You can be rich and be greedy. You can be poor and be greedy. The Romans had a proverb which said that money was like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. And that's so true. And some of us here today, I believe, are drinking feverishly of money and stuff. And our thirst for it is just growing stronger and stronger and stronger. Jesus called the rich man foolish because he couldn't see beyond himself to the needs of others. He, he saw his good fortune only in terms of making his own life easier and never as being given to him by God to be a blessing to other people. So he couldn't see beyond himself. And the second reason Jesus called him foolish is because, is because he couldn't see beyond this world. He couldn't see beyond here and now. Look at verse 19. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. All of his planning is for life here and now. In this present world system, none of his thinking is about investing in anything that will outlast this present life. None of it. All of his investment was for the here and now. None of it was for the world to come. Here's what his hoarding did. It betrayed a belief that this life is all there is. And many of us, Christians even, we live as though this life is all there is. We have to get everything we can get now because life's short. We say things like, you only go around once. You might as well grab all the gusto you can get. Whatever gusto is. <laughs> we see money as our means of getting the best possible experience in life now, instead of seeing it as another means of investing in the life to come. Jesus called the rich man foolish because he couldn't see beyond himself and he could not see beyond the here and now. So what about you? When it comes to your money and your stuff, can you see beyond yourself? Can you look past your own comfort 
and see the needs of others? Can you look past your own comfort and see the the mission of God in the world? Or do you see your possessions, your money, as only being for your own benefit here and now? Friends, money is not sinful. Having money is not sinful. But our attitude toward money can be sinful. Having nice things isn't sinful. Being selfish is sinful. Providing for your family is not sinful. Never looking to the needs of others is sinful. So how do you, how do I, how do we answer these questions? Based on Christ's teaching, would he consider you a wise steward of the resources he's given you? Or would he count you among those that he says are foolish? Being so consumed with accumulating more and more and more for our own use here and now is misguided in so many ways. And Jesus gives us a reality check on on a really big reason why this is so misguided. Because this life is not all there is. It's not. This life here and now is temporal. It's temporary. It doesn't last forever. And so in verse 20, But God said to him, You fool! This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This man has has accumulated all this reserve. He's built bigger barns to set himself up for a life of ease and comfort. And now he's not going to get to enjoy any of it. He acted only in self-interest, but he forgot to factor into the equation that he had absolutely no control over the future. None. I mean, think of what this parable represents. It really represents what most of us dream about. Acquiring enough to have our needs met and our wants met for the remainder of our lives. I mean, isn't, isn't that what we're kind of after? This guy had, had attained that. that. That's what he had achieved. Only not quite the way he had hoped. He had enough for the rest of his life. Because it was only like, you know, a couple more hours. I have achieved enough for the rest of my life if I only have a couple more hours. We convince ourselves that the accumulation of money and stuff provides security for the future. But friends, all our money and stuff provides us with is an illusion of security. I mean, let's face it. We, we, we may live a future where all the money we have is worth nothing. I won't go too deep into that, but you should allow, at least allow yourself to entertain that possibility. Why is it an illusion? Because no matter how much you have, the future is not in your control. It's just not. 
no matter how much stuff, no matter how much money, no matter how wisely you have invested, no matter how meticulously you have planned, you don't control the future. You don't even control whether or not you're going to be able to get your next breath. And now we see a great irony. Jesus says of the rich man, This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? You worked so feverishly. You, you hoarded so successfully. But guess what, rich man? Guess what, selfish man? Someone else is going to get your stuff anyway. You wanted to keep it all for yourself, but somebody else is going to benefit from all this work you've done. You lived selfishly to no avail. You gambled that this life was all there was and that you had control, but it isn't, and you didn't. The story is told of an interaction between an ambitious youth and an older man who knew about life, and here's how it went. The young man, I will learn my trade. The old man, and then? Young man, I will set up my business. Old man, and then? Young man, I will make my fortune. Old man, and then? Young man, I suppose I shall grow old and retire and live on my money. Old man. And then? Young man. Well, I suppose that someday I will die. And then the old man with his final sobering question. And then? He supposes... Someday he will die. This is the way we approach this thought of death. We suppose someday we will die. And of course, as Christians, we have this hope that death is not the final word on our story. And many of us are hopeful that we won't experience death because Christ will return before we experience physical death. But friends, if Christ doesn't return... In our lifetimes, well, there's no supposing. Uh, Newsflash. <laughs> We're all going to die. There's no supposing about it. And then? If you've given yourself to selfish ambition, if, if you've given yourself to living only for this life here and now, if... If you've pursued a life that God says is foolish when you die, and then? And we convince ourselves that then is far off. But we don't know that. Those of us who haven't yet made it to retirement, we, we don't know that we're going to make it to retirement. We hope, we, we pray we do, we don't know. You can pursue more and more and more at the expense of your family, at the expense of your relationship with God. You can seek after this elusive security in an unbalanced way. You can accumulate vast resources, but you have no idea if you're even going to be able to enjoy what you've earned. 
So in light of that, in light of this truth, why not live in a way that pleases God right now? Why not let go of money and stuff now? Why not live unselfishly, sharing as you go? Why not take care of your family and your responsibilities, but do so with an open hand toward other people? Why not look beyond yourself? Why not look beyond the here and now to what's eternal? Why not invest in things of eternal value? Why not be humble enough to know that you don't control the future, only God does? Why not live that way? Verse 21, Jesus says, This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. What's he mean? This is how, how's that? They will have wasted life on things that can't help them in eternity. They will have wasted life on things that have no lasting value. They will not get to enjoy the fruit of their selfishness. This is a little secret. You never really get to enjoy the product of your selfishness. Here's the definition, a definition. I think it's a good definition of foolish. Wasting life on things that have only temporal value instead of spending life on things of eternal value. Now, if you accept that definition, how many of us are guilty of foolishness? You know, we like to say to our children, don't put up with any foolishness in this house. And yet, we're so often living lives of foolishness. If you want something that is worthwhile when your and-then moment comes, then be less concerned with money and stuff and more concerned with being rich toward God. Four questions and then we'll, we'll wrap up here. Do you see everything you have as belonging to God. I think this is one of the key things that we can do to avoid being rich and foolish. We need to look at money rightly. And as Christians, here is what our understanding about money is. It is not ours. It is God's. Oh yeah, we worked 40, 50, 60, 70 hours to get it. It's not ours. It's all God's. And he gives it to us to use in a way that's consistent with his purposes, with his will, with with his plan for for the earth. And so if we would use money this way, it'd go a long way to helping us live unselfishly. Now, some of us answered that question, yes. So here's the next question. Do your actions support your yes answer? So you say, oh, yes, I, I know. Everything I have is God's. But do your actions back up that you know that? Or do you agree in theory that all of your stuff is really God's, but in practice not so much? Third question, are you generous? Is there a desire on your part to live in a way that creates more margin for generosity? Maybe you're not at a place right now where you really can be overly generous. But... Are you taking steps? Are you praying? Are you asking God to get you to that place where there's enough margin? 
between what you earn and, and what has to go out to support your life that you can get to a place of being generous? Do you look for opportunities to bless others, even in small ways? And lacking the financial resources to be a blessing in that way, do you look for ways to serve others? It doesn't necessarily take money to be generous. You can be generous by your actions, by the, by the service that you give. And here's one final question. Could it be that God would call some of us here to radical, what I would say, radical stewardship? John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, had this rule for his life. He said that he wanted to save all he could and he wanted to give all he could. Basically, when you understand what he was really saying there, he was saying he wanted to save all he could for the purpose of giving it all away. When he was at Oxford, his income was 30 pounds per year. He lived on 28 and gave away two. Over the years, his income increased to 60, 90, and 120 pounds per year. Yet he continued to live on 28 pounds per year and gave the rest away. Could you be called to do something that radical? Could God be asking one or two or three or five individuals or families in this congregation to make that type of radical commitment? And even the use of the word radical in talking about this is just conditioned by, by our attachment to the American dream. That's really the only reason that's even radical from a Christian perspective. Now, I'm not suggesting that that decision is required of everyone, but some of us here today might be called to a level of stewardship that is considered radical by our society's standards. Maybe God is calling you to sell everything and become a missionary. But it seems so misguided. It seems to you so financially foolish. Maybe God's calling you to move into a smaller house so that you'll have more money to give away. Maybe God is calling you to keep driving a 2004 Dodge Caravan <laughs> that you can't wait to replace with a really nice car so that you can help a family that's struggling in your neighborhood. Maybe God's calling. I believe it was Jim Elliott, and I think I have this quote right, who said this, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, this is the essence of Jesus' teaching here. Don't give all of your strength and energy to stuff that you can't keep anyway. Give your strength, your energy, your very being to the things that have real, eternal value. Why don't you stand